And this week, thanks especially to our partner, K11 Musea. Morning Meeting is brought to you by K11 Musea, the cultural retail destination in Hong Kong, which is celebrating its first anniversary this fall. Yes, if you've been to it, and I haven't because basically I've gone nowhere this year, you'd know that this project by Adrian Chang, which is located in the Victoria Dockside District, is a one-of-a-kind space that K11 Musea fosters community and cross-cultural dialogue by bringing together creativity, culture, and innovation all while you shop. In celebration of its first Last year, K11 Musea is featuring a rare selection of art and culture happenings from October 9th through November 8th, including installations and exhibits showcasing works from Keith Haring, Vincent van Gogh, Javier Kaleja, and more. So for more information, head to k11musea.com or to the destination's official Instagram at k 11 Musea. Happy Saturday! It's October 17th, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. Hi, Ashley Baker. I'm Michael Haney, one of the deputy editors here at Airmail. Michael, how are you feeling on this fine fall morning? I'm feeling more than fine on this fine fall morning, if that's a tongue twister to be. Happy that the NBA crowned a champion, LeBron, had his title this week. But you know what I'm not happy about? Is I'm always, I can never be 100% happy. You know what I'm not happy about? The state of the world. Basically, like, no, actually, because there's so many things to be unhappy about right now, but tell me. I'm just going to drill down. I got to place my rage somewhere. Do you know, you know that Crocs are back? You're joking. Balenciaga Crocs or like actual Crocs? Well, Balenciaga is basically making Crocs cool again. You don't remember Crocs, that thing that was all those crazy color shoes that seemed everyone in the world was wearing about five years ago? Yeah, that Mario Batali made famous. If Mario Batali didn't ruin them, then... Right, and I even think at one point, like 10 years ago, people at Time Magazine voted them one of the worst inventions of the last 50 years or something. But anyway, so Justin Bieber released a cl- collaboration this week, and apparently, like, they're in the COVID world we live in because everyone wants comfort. Crocs are back. So that's what's got me crabbing today. I'd be fine if it weren't for that, okay? In the realm of ugly footwear, I always choose Uggs over Crocs. You know, Brooke is a fan of Uggs. She's got Uggs. I think, you know, she. I would wear them, but I'm not, you know, I think it's just, they don't look good on me. All right, Michael, we're just going to stick with what we know, okay? I'm currently wearing some Isabel Morant boots, and I'm sure you're wearing some John Lobb fabulousness. I've got my Alden Wade uh, chuckers on them, so that's what I like. All right, perfect. So let's not even go there. But ladies and gentlemen, if you're wearing Uggs, we have really no words of advice for you. Sorry. It's a Saturday. You can wear Uggs. I think just... Crocs is where I'm going to draw the line. I think this is where I'm supposed to plug Airmail's weekly style picks. Guys, we have suggestions for you, okay? We don't need to go back to this universe of plastic shoes. Go to read Airmail every Saturday. We come up with four sort of beautifully curated pieces of merchandise for your consideration. And we do have a very exciting... Are we allowed to talk about our upcoming shoe collaboration, Michael? Maybe not. I don't know. It's like the little... It's like the, it sounds like the fairy tale with the cobbler who falls asleep at night. But yeah, whatever it is. All right. Well, I think we're announcing in a few weeks, but don't buy any shoes until you see the ones that we are going to be releasing in collaboration with one of your favorite shoe brands. Stay tuned. Dun, dun, dun. All right, Michael. Um, I'm in a, a New York City is feeling incredible today. I'm actually at the office working alongside Clementine. Clem is uh, one of our fantastic assistant editors here. Um, so she's, uh, I'm, I'm shouting her way, but we're sitting 10 feet apart. So I think Hopefully we're cool. We'll get the windows open pretty soon. Um, and you're just around the block, actually. So I, I don't get to see you today, but 
I'm here with you in spirit. Yeah, but actually I'm, I'm not around the block. Oh, that's right. I'm dog sitting my friend Tucker out here in Montauk. So I'm really feeling fine on this fall weekend because I've got a beautiful, handsome dog sitting here at my feet and I'm in Montauk. So I've gotten out of the city for a little bit as I'm dog sitting, Brooke and I are dog sitting with Tucker and our friends who so kindly let us borrow their house and take care of their dog. Well, that's a bummer, Michael, because I was going to tell you, I think we should go play tennis today. The scene on the West Side Highway is robust. It's really interesting. So I was out running this morning and it's a beautiful fall day here in the city, probably high 50s. And I was shocked <laughs> in a pleasant way by the way that enterprising New Yorkers have taken over the piers on the West Side Highway and turned them into these outdoor gyms. There was a big group of people from Gotham Gym that was doing like a full on sort of kickboxing class, gloves, kettle bells, the whole thing. And there were small groups, people working with trainers. There were even some people that had brought their laptops and mobile devices to do online workouts outside on these grassy piers. And it was just another great example for me of the ingenuity of New Yorkers. I agree. I was riding my bike a few weeks ago past right there around 10th Street on the West Side Highway. And I hear someone shouting, hey, hey. turn around and it's Gabe Stillman, my friend who owns a number of the restaurants here in the village, Jeffrey's and, and uh, Fairfax and other places. And he's there with his trainer, which I think I think it's great, but what I what I noticed lately is like I don't want to be the trainer who basically I see this like every so often the trainer who's then has to like haul the kettleballs back to their apartment and all the workout equipment. I think it's great, but I if I were going to open up a little business, I'd be the guy who I will sort of task grab all your kettleballs over there. All right, well that sounds sufficiently vague and intriguing, Michael. We'll get to that. Okay, you and I'll talk about that offline, Michael. Let's start with the most pressing news story of the week. No, it is not Amy Coney Barrett. No, it is not coronavirus. It is. Adam Claude, supplier of high-end prostitutes to JFK, the Shah of Iran, Frank Sinatra, and more. Talk to us. Who is this woman? Okay, I just want to say I never dealt with this woman. If you're trying to like sort of like intimate I have, I will tell you. I'm just saying you know all the most important people in Paris. We'll let our listeners I do know all the most important people in Paris, but this is a story that came to us that I have no first-hand knowledge with. It's about Peter by Peter Conradi. And Madame Claude was a woman who, she basically supplied high-class prostitutes to politicians, businessmen, and foreign leaders in Paris in the 60s and 70s, back when French France's post-war boom years. And they're now making a movie of her life. It is sort of like a post-Me Too generation biopic, which portrays her as kind of an anti-heroine and this ambiguous mixture of successful businesswoman and maybe a little bit of female thug. But her success, she was a fascinating woman. She was born in 1923. She was raised in the countryside, became a single mother at 16. And she went on to fool everyone in Paris who she invented this whole background of herself that she had sort of fought in the resistance. She'd even gone to a Nazi female POW camp or concentration camp. And her success lay in her embrace of this simple, humble telephone back in the 60s. You all know the phrase, call girl. Okay, call girl is a phrase that basically was invented to apply to her because back in the day, you used to have to go to a brothel. You have to sort of like, men had to go there and find a woman. But she sort of made it very discreet. He basically called her and she then sent a woman who she screened and she had this whole world of women. They're all in their young 20s and 30s and she sort of hired them for their ability to be not just charming and pleasurable, but also smart, intelligent. She made them read she, and she even sort of gave them access to, shall we say, enhancements if they wanted it, but they had to pay her back if she left, if they left their employment. So it's a fascinating story of this woman who then she basically ran the most successful high-end call girl ring in Paris. When Giscard d'Estaing became president in the 70s, he cracked down on her. She left 
Paris, moved to California, briefly tried to sort of replicate her success there, was servicing men like Sinatra, Sammy Davis Jr. Didn't work out. She moved back to France. And then she died in 2015. And basically, no one really knew that she died. There were six people at her funeral. This woman who sort of is outsized importance in, in Paris and France in the 60s and 70s. And there it was. So pretty fascinating story. It's one of those biopics I think is going to be equally great to see. A woman who, as the director said, you know, she was as influential in crime as Pablo Escobar. She sort of saw this market, saw this moment, saw a way to take control of it, sort of own the market on it. And so, yeah, is she, was she dealing in sex trafficking? Absolutely. But on the other hand, she was seen as, this, as we say, a post Me Too strong female. And I think we'll wait and see how the movie plays it out to see how she plays out. Michael, do we do we know who plays Madame Claude in the film? But all right, let's just cast it for a second here. Okay. Favorite young French actress? Yeah. Adele Acropolis? I mean, please, she'd be perfect. That'd be pretty great, right? I mean, I'll watch her in anything. Yeah. And I wonder, like, do you play her across time? Do, is she in the 60s and 70s and then up until, or do you ever, like, have someone, like, looking back over their life and then you sort of flashback? Like, could you have Charlotte Rampling playing her as an old lady? Yes, please. She does sound like a character out of a Colette novel, doesn't she? For sure, right? You could see her wrapping the corner in Sherry or something, living was was born to nothingness, single mother, and then basically creates this fiction about herself that pulls in all these men of power and allows her to be at the center of this power. And I forgot to tell you, at the same time, she's servicing all these men, as it were. She's also then feeding information to the French police and intelligence agencies about who's up to what in Paris. So getting men who are compromised and in compromising positions, but basically helping the French authorities as well. Well, she's basically a public servant. Yeah. You know the take on this movie in a post-Me Too era. I think you should be a movie producer, actually. I mean, look, I, I need another pet project. One of my favorite tidbits from the story is that she calls her women swans. And she didn't think that their features were up to scratch. And she usually didn't. She also she sent them all to the same cosmetic surgeon that she used herself. And if they ended up leaving her employment, then they would have to refund the cost of the plastic surgery. So I wonder if there was a specific look that she went for. Like if they were all sort of maddled on Catherine Deneuve and Belle de Jour, which, by the way, is a movie we should probably rewatch this weekend. Yeah, or maybe that's a business model you should start. I'm sure someone's Googling that right now. Can I find that? Knowing Paris, I'm, there's probably someone who's, who's cornered that market too, right? Without a doubt. All right, well, on to less salacious matters, Michael. Well, less um, salacious, but equally strange. Talk- Can I bring up another story of this week? Please do. Okay, because this is the other side of the coin. Women behaving in non-linear ways. Here's a story we've got by Damien Whitworth out of the UK. It's about this guy, Sir Benjamin Slade, 74-year-old British aristocrat who has a uh, manor house, 2,000-acre manor house. He's a baronet, whatever the hell that means. I don't even know. And he sort of never appears anywhere in print without the word eccentric attached to it. So you already know that's a royal way of saying he's a nut job. So he recently advertised for a wife who can provide him with an heir. And he wrote in his advertisement, you must have a shotgun certificate, be able to run two castles, an estate, and a grouse moor. And you must be able to breed two sons. A little private capital and income would be helpful. A large fortune would be more helpful. So he he, like all of us, got hit by COVID. He used to rent out the estate to weddings and wedding parties. And now I guess he's suffering a lack of income and maybe he's a little lonely too. So how do we feel about him? I don't really have an opinion. 
opinion, Michael. I've rendered you speechless. That wouldn't be the first time. This is to give you an example of how eccentric he is. As he says to in this piece, 20 years ago, he froze his sperm. I guess he's an optimist to the end. But as he says about his frozen sperm, he says, quote, all good stuff, 80% wrigglers. Oh, gross. Honestly, nobody needs to know that kind of detail. Gentlemen, listen, if you know that kind of information about yourself, please keep it private. If any of you are eating breakfast right now and sorry, scrambling eggs. Oh God. oh, God. Enough, enough. Moving on. Just a quick word about there's a great piece on a musical front because I don't know about you, Michael. I'm acutely missing concerts. We've talked about this before. There was a song that was I was listening to nonstop during the salad days of lockdown back in March and April. And it's a song by a singer songwriter from the UK named Arlo Parks. And she's still very much an emerging talent in the UK. She's 19 years old. She's a poet. And that was sort of how she got her start. And last year, she just picked up a guitar and started strumming and writing songs. And she manages to capture sort of the agony and the ecstasy of Gen Z in this this really soulful, beautifully rendered music. So I'm so excited. Elena Claverino has written a short little profile of Arlo, but really listen to her music. It's just such a delight. And it's always fun to discover new talent on that front. And I wish I could hear her in concert. Perhaps 2022 will be kinder on that front. What are the agonies and the ecstasies of Gen Z? Loneliness, alienation, the internet. I don't know. I mean, thank God, Michael, I'm not a member of that generation. So but perhaps we could phone a friend. Should I phone a friend for this? There's not, not always a lot of sympathy for Gen Z in the media during this time. But I feel like that generation is, is one that I feel has been so... I, I really feel for them during this pandemic, right? Because there are some that would say, like, don't feel sorry for college students. Don't feel sorry for people in their young 20s who don't have to deal with homeschooling. And But what a terrible time to be young, right? Like when you're sort of morally obligated to avoid all of the activity that make that such a fun time in your life. I'm going to sound like grandpa here now. But like they have FaceTime. They have like they have a means to, to connect with everyone. I don't know. I mean, I know it's hard, but they're not cut off from people. Yes, but they're going to inherit such a difficult economy. And it's it's like a very shitty time to be young. No, I would agree on that. I know, you know, I think also not just to be in Gen Z, but, you know, from my good friend, Dr. John Duffy, who's a child psychologist in, in Chicago. It's also an incredibly stressful time to be in high school, in grammar school. I think it's, it's you know, you've got that whole world upended. There's a lot of anxiety among kids right now. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, thank you, Michael. I have two young kids. And on that depressing note, uh, I'll continue I to just, worry you, about you were the one who's... <laughs> Why am I always like told I'm, yeah, I'm the depressing one? <laughs> I know, I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. All right, well, there's a group of scientists that have discovered a bacterium that digests plastic. And a group of scientists have recently taken sort of the biological function of that bacterium and used it to make a super enzyme. And they hope that this could help to solve the world's plastic problems. It's pretty cool. So the objective is, is to turn this bacterium into what we call full-scale recycling plants. And it looks like it's going to become commercially viable a lot faster than they had originally thought. So this species of bacterium was discovered in 2016 in a Japanese recycling plant. And they realized that it had learned how to digest plastic. And all of a sudden, scientists all over the world were trying to figure out how they had actually achieved that. The reason that plastics are such a problem and the reason that they take so long to degrade, it's not because of something that's particularly special about the material. It's just because it's new. Before plastics arrived, no creature on earth had ever seen any like it, so they never learned to eat it. But thanks to evolution, it turns out that the first bacterium that eats plastic has arrived. And there are two enzymes that work together, potassium.
PETAS and METAS. And so the PETAS breaks the plastic into these soluble chunks, and then the METAS uh, degrades it into a simple chemical. So this is pretty exciting. Hopefully, the idea is that, you know, perhaps one day nature might be able to clean up the massive mess that we have caused with plastic. So that's some hopeful news on the environmental front. It is hopeful news. And I just can't help myself because like, I know it's because everything goes back to movies you watch as a kid, but you know, it's being developed in Japan. All I can just see is like, there's an accident. There's some Godzilla like moment that happens with this thing. And I don't know, but for real, anything gets rid of plastic in the world, please, please. Nobel prize for those people. I'm really glad you can't see me right now sipping my coffee out of a plastic cup from Mazidar Bakery. Oh, sorry. I've been really trying, Michael. I've tried. It's hard in COVID days. You can't bring a recyclable, you can't bring like a reusable cup anymore to the coffee shop. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. Starbucks used to have like a major initiative surrounding that. And now because of COVID sanitary regulations, you can't bring reusable cups anymore. So I should perfect my at-home coffee game so that I no longer have to buy coffee out. But it is one of these rituals of life in New York that I'm not quite willing to give up, at least for as, as long as things remain open. All right, Michael, we have a great piece. Sam Wasson has written a wonderful story about the latest novel from Bruce Wagner. It's called The Marvel Universe Origin Stories. Can you tell us a little bit about Sam's concept here? So what's what's on Sam's mind? Yeah, and I love Sam's writing. I don't know if you've all read what I think is one of my favorite books of the year, which is The Big Goodbye, and that's his tale of the making of Chinatown with Polanski, Robert Evans, Jack Nicholson, Greenwriter Robert Town. I simply love this book. I can't recommend it enough. And this is a piece, Sam, based out in L.A. It's a story about another Hollywood writer, Bruce Wagner. You probably know him best for a terrific novel he wrote a few years ago called Dead Stars, which, as Sam calls it, it's Bruce's masterpiece anyway. So Bruce had a new book ready to go, a new novel. As Ashley said, it's called The Marvel Universe Origin Stories. And as he's kind of finishing up the book, he gets a call from his editor who tells him that he can't use a word in it because it's offensive. So as Sam says, can you guess what word it was? And the word is fat. And in it, Wagner then sort of as tells, as Wagner tells Sam, he has a fictional character in the book who weighs more than 500 pounds. And her goal is to get to a thousand. And the editor sort of circled that and said, you just can't have her call herself fat. So Wagner kind of incensed, as he says to um, Sam, my entire body of work would be thrown into a furnace if it were to be read and judged by sensitivity readers. And so it's a fantastic piece right now and sort of gets to where some of these arguments in the culture are right now about can you and can you not, should you and should you not use certain words as an artist, as a person creating work. So it's a provocative piece that'll make you think. You know, as I said, Bruce is a terrific talent and Sam is, it's an important piece to read and uh, take a look at. Wonderful. Well, I hate to think, Michael, but I suppose it is necessary from time to time. I will read it. Michael, have you heard about K-11 Original Masters? I have, but why don't you tell our listeners a little bit more, Ashley? Well, Adrian Chang and Corinne Reutfeld, two of the fashion industry's biggest champions, have come together to launch K-11 Original Masters, a new webinar series that celebrates the iconic fashion houses, designers, and creative directors of today. And I know this debut episode is of more than a little interest to you because of the guest. You could say that. In it, Christelle Cochet, the artistic director of Maison Le Marier, Chanel Metier joins Chang and Reutfeld for a rare behind-the-scenes look 
into the inner workings of Chanel's renowned Maison d'Art. Oh, very nice pronunciation. I have a feeling I will be there along with my wife, Brooke, who's a big fan of Chanel, obviously. But to watch the series premiere, head to K11 Musée's official Instagram at K11 Musée, or you can view it now via IGTV. So last week, we had on our illustrious co-editor of Airmail, Graydon Carter, to talk about Donald Trump. This week, we're going to lighten things up a bit, although I'm sure you guys want Graydon back on immediately, and so do we. So Graydon, this is our desperate plea to you. Please return. We'll see you in a few weeks, hopefully. So today, we're so happy to welcome one of the all-time icons of the American culinary arts, Ina Garten. Back in 1999, Ina introduced her first cookbook. It was called The Barefoot Contessa, and it was named after after a little food shop that she had in the town of East Hampton. And ever since, she's become sort of a face of American home cooking with her recipes that are easy to achieve, very often successful. And she has just a great sort of no-nonsense sensibility. I've been cooking from her for 20 years. I mean, it's basically forever. And I always find something new and fresh to do with her recipes. And I don't think anyone is more excited about this interview, Michael, than my mom. Yeah, you know what else? Brooke was really excited too, because she said she got us through lockdown with all her recipes. So, yeah. And Ina Garten is here to talk about her new cookbook, which I think my mom already got me for my birthday. It's called Modern Comfort Food, and it's full of 85 recipes that just do exactly what we need good food to do during these times, which is to make us feel better. Well, she is the best. I saw her once at Carissa's Bread in East Hampton, and I tried not to have a fangirl moment, but uh, she's really just a lovely person, and we are so happy to welcome Ina Garten, reporting live from her home in East Hampton. Thank you, Ina. Sure. First of all, it's so exciting to have our quarantine icon here on Morning. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> how have you been, Ina? First of all, where are you? I'm in East Hampton and I'm just working away, which is amazing that I can live here and work here and just get everything done without any trouble, which is, I mean, everything's harder as it is for everybody else, because I have to do everything myself. <laughs> Are you recipe testing a lot? That's what I'm doing, working on the next book right now. But I've been filming my TV show by myself, which is quite a challenge, <laughs> to say the least, and finishing the, the last book. So, yeah, there's a lot going on here. I'm not bored. <laughs> What's it like to record a TV show all by yourself? Difficult. You have to do your own hair, you have to do makeup, then you have to be the food stylist, then you have to be the prop stylist, then you have to do anything that if you want to do a swap, you have to do the swap. And then you have to actually set up the cameras, get that all set, do the mic. And then when you're done with that, if you're not exhausted, then you have to be the presenter. You have to actually film the show. And then when you're done with that, you have to do the dishes. <laughs> so I'm a film crew of 12 people. I have an important question then. Where's Jeffrey in all this? <laughs> Jeffrey's working. He's got a, he's got a day job. You got to put him to work then, you know? It's like he's, he's, your, he's your PA on this. <laughs> no, unfortunately, it's not my assistant. Well, I know we've got a whole group of airmail people. If you ever need a hand, just give us a call. We'll be right, be right. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. <laughs> Tell us about your new book. What a great time for it's a new specialty in comfort food to come out into the world. Well, the timing was quite remarkable, wasn't it? I decided to write the book two years ago because I knew that we would be a month before the election. And no matter what side of the aisle you were on, you were going to be stressed out. So I thought comfort food, that's just what we're going to need. And I'm going to do it with a kind of a modern twist with make things fresher and lighter and easier to prepare. Little did I know that we would be dealing with a pandemic. We would be dealing with 
racial justice issues. We'd be dealing with, of course, the election, the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the Supreme Court seat. I mean, the, the layers of stress are just unbelievable. And it turned out that it's just what everybody needed, which was really nice. I mean, it's just kind of a little gift because I put these things out in the world thinking I love giving people the tools to make something good for themselves and their families and their friends. But at a time when everybody needs it more than ever, you know, it's just wonderful. When you've had a particularly difficult day, what recipe are you looking to? <laughs> what am I What am I making? Oatmeal. <laughs> something really easy to prepare that's just delicious and makes you feel good. <laughs> that's fantastic. You had a major moment during the lockdown with your quarantine cosmopolitan. Uh, <laughs> Wasn't that funny? <laughs> How did the idea, I mean, it was really just my, my favorite thing to go viral in those early days of the pandemic. How did the idea come to you? Well, what happened was we were getting ready in the beginning of March when I told my assistants we really need to prepare and shop for groceries that we can live on for six months. I think they thought I'd lost my mind, but I just said, go out and buy everything you're going to need for six months because we may not be able to leave our houses. And so one of my assistants went downstairs in my basement with me, sort of clear off some shelves so we could put the paper towels and toilet paper and everything and dish soap away. And there were these two huge martini glasses there that somebody had given me as a joke. And I was like, oh, get rid of these. And she said, not so fast. You might need them someday. And I thought, what am I going to do with them? And don't you know, two weeks later, I thought, wouldn't it be fun to do them cosmopolitan, but do it in a really big glass? <laughs> and I, just, I mean, I just did it for fun. I didn't do it for any larger purpose, but I, I guess I must have felt like I needed a cosmopolitan. A big cosmopolitan. <laughs> Maybe somebody else does too. Little did I know that, that it was going to become this enormous thing. I have to say one of my favorite things to come out of this period has been the return of the daily cocktail hour. It's not just <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and as I said, in a pandemic, that can be any time. <laughs> <laughs> totally. 11 a.m. Let's talk a little bit about some of your indulgences. How do you keep it all so fresh? I'm sure people ask you that all the time. But What I learned at the store, which was unique and I I think it was a really good preparation for writing cookbooks is that people eat differently at home than they do in a restaurant. You want something a little more interesting, a little more challenging in a restaurant. Whereas at home, you want something that's really simple that you can make with ingredients you've gotten from a grocery store. So I kind of keep that in my head while I'm working on recipes that do you want to eat this at home? Is it a big pot of stew or soup or a roast chicken or, you know, a chocolate cake? Those are things that you want to eat at home. So it's limited in terms of what kinds of recipes I can do in a book. One of my favorite recipes of yours is from the original Barefoot Contested cookbook, your turkey meatloaf. Oh, isn't that great? And did you go to the, the butcher and say, I want five pounds of ground turkey? And he said, you want what? <laughs> <laughs> Those recipes were from the store and I realized that was a big turkey meatloaf. So I think a lot of people cut it in half. Oh, well, who knew? I mean, I used to make it in college all the time. And I have to say, I think I fed my entire dorm from that. <laughs> That's great. That's a good one. So is there a difference between comfort food and a guilty pleasure? Yeah. What's a guilty pleasure to you? I was thinking about like what you're saying about stress eating almost, you know, but like some people's guilty pleasure would be, I don't know, they want to have like chips and salsa, right? Is that a snack or is that comfort food? I know we're getting into like... I think a guilty pleasure is like Reese's peanut butter cups where you just like, it's something that you just love and you don't want to make a diet of it, but every once in a while you just have to do it. Whereas comfort food to me is a big pot of really, 
good beef stew. In this book, I did a wild mushroom mac and cheese, something like that. It's something that's nourishing, but also makes you feel good. Pleasure probably makes you feel terrible. <laughs> well, it gives you some comfort for maybe a half an hour, and then you wake up on the couch with in a food coma. <laughs> it's, it may be something you regret the next day. Right. This is something that you just, it just makes you feel good. Okay. And, and it allows you to take care of the people around you. Then here's an important question. You mentioned cheese with mac and cheese. What is your go-to cheese for grilled cheese? Um, really good sharp cheddar. That's what I, I like. And the grilled cheese sandwich I have in the book has chutney on it. So it's nice to do something a little different with a grilled cheese sandwich. And are you a purist? Would you put your grilled cheese with a tomato soup or would you want it just by itself? I take the grilled cheese any way you want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and in fact, I was talking to Sam Sifton and he said he had some leftover duck breast, seared duck breast, which he sliced really thinly and put into a grilled cheese sandwich with some greens. And I thought that was a really good idea. Wow. Making it fancy. I like it. Exactly. Isn't that great? And if Paris is one of your enduring loves, what does it feel like not to be able to go there? And, and when do you imagine you'll be back? There are two hard things for me in a pandemic. The one is that I can't hug my friends, which I think it's, it's so hard when somebody comes over for a drink and you can't just wrap yourself around them. And the other is not going to Paris. I don't know how I'm going to live without Paris. It just feeds my soul. It's my place where I check out, just hang out at a cafe and have a creme and t- a tartine. And I'm just happy there. But we'll be back. Is there a favorite comfort meal for you in Paris? Well, there's always French onion soup. That's just wonderful. But even, you know, like an omelet at Cafe de Flore. It's just, if we're there and we're, and it's late and we want to go for a really, you know, wonderful dinner, we just go to Cafe de Flore, have a good bottle of wine and and an omelet and a salad. And I'm very happy. Making me hungry. Well, Ina, thank you so much. We'll let you get back to producing your TV show, but, but send it. <laughs> I have one more question for you, okay? It's going to be a decision tree, all right? Okay. Okay, so pie versus cake. Pie. All right, pie versus ice cream. Oh, always ice cream. Ice cream versus pizza. That's a tough one. Ice cream. <laughs> ice cream versus a martini. Ice cream. <laughs> ice cream trumps everything. There we go. That's good. <laughs> And vanilla, particularly. So what's your favorite vanilla? Because I, I love vanilla. Everyone thinks I'm boring, but I say like pure great vanilla is, it's like a great yes. re- like burgundy, right? Exactly. Vanilla bean haagen is just fine with me. I'm sure there are great, other great ones. It's so accessible and it's so good and it's just great. And you know what I do, I do with vanilla ice cream sometimes? If I need a really fast dessert, go to a bakery or and get a chocolate cake and take a pint of vanilla haagen melt it and use it as a creme anglaise sauce. Because ice cream is creme anglaise that's been frozen. So when you defrost it, it becomes creme anglaise again. Make a really fast sauce with it. It's lucky that this is a podcast because the people listening to it cannot see. I look like Homer Simpson right now drooling. (laughs) If you haven't tried the Van Leeuwen vanilla ice cream, I highly recommend that one. Oh, good. Thank you very much. Love a recommendation. (laughs) This has been really fun. Thank you. It's really fun to talk to you. Thanks so much. I love talking to Ina about comfort food and because in the issue today, she talks about restaurants she loves. And I was thinking like comfort food is, she's, as she said in the interview, like it's something you can make at home that you necessarily can't get out in a restaurant. But I would say, and I'm reminded of this because this restaurant just this week celebrated its 40th anniversary in New York City. There are certain restaurants that can give you comfort because they're almost like your second home. And that one is the Odeon in New York. Favorite. Favorite, right? It was the first restaurant that anyone 
it took me to when I moved to New York all those years ago. And the person who took me there, in fact, was Graydon. And I was working in Spy. He took me for my first, he took me for my first business lunch. I felt like I had been taken to the moon. I, I didn't know where I was. And I saw like, I remember sitting there thinking, if I ever become, if I ever get enough money, I want to eat here every day or once a week. And for a long time, I did. As a bachelor in New York, it was kind of like my second home. Um, so because it's all the great comfort classics, right? Anyway, 40th anniversary. There you go. Yeah. And I mean, Odeon was down in Tribeca before anything was down there. I actually used to live around the corner on Duane Street for many years and I would go for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner. I mean, I was there all the time. And it's such a special sort of piece of the city's fabric, right? I mean, Michael, you were probably living that super cool Jay McInerney type existence, but... Minus the cocaine, okay? Minus cocaine, okay. But the rest of it, it was such a cool scene, especially, you know, sort of in the 70s and 80s when it had first opened and was such a, a beacon for, you know, sort of the downtown intelligentsia to come and let very loose. That's right. Bright Lights Big City, Bolivian marching powder, which I did not partake in. But Keith McNally's brother Brian and Keith's former wife Lynn started it. And you're right about it existing before Tribeca even had a name. Some years ago, I was talking with Keith and I asked him how they chose that restaurant, why they put it there. And he said, 1979, he and his brother were getting right open the, the restaurant and Lynn with his wife. And he said, no one even went below Houston, let alone Canal Street. He said, we found this old restaurant. We took it over. And he said, he said that iconic neon Odeon sign, which is memorialized on the cover of McInerney's book, Bright Lights, Big City. He said, we put that there and we made it so bright. He said, because the neighborhood, which is now called Tribeca, and said, no one's there. He said, and we wanted this kind of like beacon so any cab drivers coming down with people who might come could see us and he and i said well that must have like made all the difference he said no he said here's what put us on the map he said a week or two after we opened october 1980 he said lauren michaels called us and they wanted to do one of the after parties for saturday night live he said all of a sudden i had belushi Ackroyd, gilda jane Curtin, everyone the hottest people in new york and he said that after party put us on the map and he said it became then you know for, for all the 80s into the 90s. It was, it was as you said, the, the place where everyone from Madonna to Calvin Klein to Basquiat to anyone who was anyone in New York on the arts scene downtown was at the Odeon. And here it is 40 years later. So mazel. Isn't it great? Especially, you know, when we're seeing so many restaurants close, we really do need to celebrate those guys that are working so hard to stay open in these really difficult times. Also, you know, I still remember during the Hurricane Sandy, I was living in Tribeca at the time, right around the corner from the Odeon. And those guys were one of the first people to open. I mean, talk about a restaurant that is so tied to its community. They really wanted to like take care of everyone in the neighborhood and make sure that people had food. I mean, the shutdown that was caused by Sandy seems so quaint compared to COVID-19 and what that did to the city of New York in March and April, but it was such a big deal at the time. And those guys have been there forever and we're just so glad that they are. Yeah. Maybe we should go there for our next lunch in the city. I'm like famished. I'm ready to go right now because I've got a meeting in 20 minutes. A little omelet, red wine at the bar. You're all set. French oh, fries. the fries. You know, the French onion soup there is. Yeah, absurd. see, it's comfort food in a comforting environment. There you go. Mm -hmm. I do want to go back to Pastis too. Another wonderful Keith McNally operation. I've been. It's fantastic. Oh, you've been post-COVID? Oh, man. It's got a great outdoor seating. It's right next to the, uh, they reopened the spot. But the, and if you go on Friday, Saturdays, they push even more tables out in the street. So yeah, I, I would recommend it for lunch too. Wow. Okay. Good to know. The one thing I want to recommend, speaking of Clem, she turned us on this week to a crazy little Instagram feed called Miserable Men. 
Do you know about this? Yeah, like pretty much every guy I've ever dated is on there. Joking. I've never heard of it. Feel the burn. Kidding. Well, it's an Instagram feed. It basically, you know, if you walk through a store or a shopping center or a mall and it's what um, there's always what Clementine's mother calls the boyfriend chair. It's basically where a guy sits while the woman shops. And it's just an Instagram feed of guys sitting there waiting for their wife or girlfriend or whoever to sort of like. So, but it's, it's funny. I mean, it's even got Bruce Springsteen standing by as Patty, uh, his wife tries on a necklace. It's my goofy Instagram indulgence of the week, but, um, yeah, that's what I recommend. I love that. One of my favorite feeds of a similar ilk is hot guys reading. Is that, that does that have any Rex boyfriends on it? No, uh, definitely not. It's actually, sorry, it's hot dudes reading and it's just pictures of hot guys reading books on the subway, basically. It has 1.3 million followers. Pretty funny. Well, Michael, I have nothing to recommend except these Isabel Morant boots instead of Crocs and starting every day with a delicious iced coffee from your local neighborhood bakery. Not so bad. One last thing I just want to mention, Ashley, got a fun, great life this week. Just one of those people who I wish I could have sat down and had a drink with this guy. I'm Rita Sherpa, who was known as the Snow Leopard, died recently, and he led 18 expeditions to the top of mountains over 26,000 feet and never used oxygen. He was born in a tiny village near Mount Everest in 1948. He became a Sherpa at 15 after he was orphaned to make some money, basically, and he reached the summit for the first time in 1983, and he held the record for the most ascents without supplemental oxygen, but he also became this kind of bon vivant, like to go out for drinks and still would guide people up the mountain. So pretty incredible life. One of those people who in a moment when seeming like everyone can climb Everest, sort of a reminder of how it can be scaled without oxygen and the people who made it possible. Okay, wonderful. Michael, I do have one thing to recommend, actually. The trailer for Hillbilly Elegy, which is the new Netflix film that stars Amy Adams and Glenn Close, looks incredible. I can't wait to see this movie. It was directed by Ron Howard and it was based on J.D. Vance's 2016 memoir. Do you remember this book? It was like a bestseller four years ago. Anyway, Amy Adams and Glenn Close. I mean, no words, Michael. Words fail me. Go watch the trailer. I can't wait to see this film. It's coming out on Netflix on November 24th. And the film also stars Haley Bennett, Frida Pinto, and Bo Hopkins. So an all-star cast already getting Oscar buzz. So can't wait to see it. Speaking of Netflix, can I recommend one film you're reminding me? By our esteemed airmail music supervisor and acclaimed music producer out in the world, Randall Poster, who does our music here, but it's done for Martin Scorsese movies, Wes Anderson's movies, every basically every movie you can think of. He He's produced a new movie out on Netflix called The Devil All the Time, which you may have seen with Tom Holland and Bill Skarsgård. It's pretty intense. You should really watch it. Very nice job by Randall. I mean, is there anything Randy can't do? This guy's giving me a complex. No, pretty much not. I mean, as I said, you know, can do the music for The Joker, can do music for The Irishman, can do, he's got the soundtrack for Wes Anderson's eventually a coming movie, which has been delayed, does all Wes's movies. And no, so it's, um, he's this very smart, generous, kind, fun guy. And this is a new movie he, he helped produce. It's a point of pride for me that I always brag that Airmail is the only publication that has a music supervisor on the masthead. And it's such a treat to work with him because it turns out we use music a lot and a lot of different projects that we do. And it's so enriching. And he's just so wildly talented and has turned me on to so many great new artists and songs and albums. And this is another opportunity to Michael. We should really plug our airmail playlist, guys. Follow us on Spotify. You're just going to add so much to your next dinner party or to your next Saturday, Saturday evening at home. But really listen to these playlists. They're so much fun and they're so unexpected. And, you know, otherwise we don't want you to get stuck in a music rut listening to Blues Traveler from 1996. Come on now. That's a devastating cut. 
Blues Traveler. I do love Blues Traveler. Sorry. Okay. On that note, Michael, will you please read us out? I'd be delighted to. Uh, first of all, I want to thank our partner, K-11 Museum, for their sponsorship this week. Morning Meeting is produced by Airmail Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet, with special thanks to Joe Perzicki. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We'll be back here next Saturday with a new edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you like to. But most of all, thank you for joining us.